I'm going to start off and tell you a story. The year was 1982, which uh, I know is a bit of a while ago for some people. I was 17 years old, a scruffy, unshaven teenager, and my family had just been on a holiday to Malaysia. We are on our way back, we were just going through customs at Sydney Airport, and uh, I was lagging behind in my own world. My mum and my dad and my sisters, they were well dressed. They went straight through customs, no problems. But as I came through a bit after, I was stopped. Obviously looked a bit suspicious. The customs man asked me to step into another room for some further screening. <laughs> but I'm with them. I protested desperately. Surprisingly, the customs man relented and he let me catch up to my family and go through customs. No need for the full body search after all. Well, you know, sometimes I reckon we can be a bit like that with Christianity. I'll explain what I mean. Those of us who grow up in a Christian family, our parents have strong faith, they'll get through customs on their way to heaven, and we hope we'll get through because we're with them. I mean, it's not like we're bad people, we're moral, we don't do anything terrible. Everyone knows us, who knows us would say we're nice. But maybe our own faith isn't all that strong. Maybe we're not so interested in Jesus in a day-to-day -day sort of way. But we're not that worried about it. We don't really feel like we need to make radical changes. We don't feel any great need. We don't feel like we're in danger that God would reject us. And we hope we'll get through sort of on the strength of our family connections, just like I scraped through in customs. So here in John chapter 3, we meet a bloke with the best possible family connections. As far as getting into heaven is concerned, this man had all the right connections. He was a Jew, he was a Pharisee, the most religious of the Jews. I'll tell you all about him in a minute, but first, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads and pray. Please, God, open your word, the Bible, to each one of us here tonight. Speak through your word and speak through this Bible talk and wherever we are at, please meet us there. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the first verse of John chapter 3 introduces a person called Nicodemus. And as I mentioned, he's a Pharisee. But he's not just any Pharisee. He's one of the elite. The successful, rich, old school rulers. He's a senior professor of the Jews. Verse 1 says... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Who is this Nicodemus? Well, if he had a Facebook page, it would look something like this. Thank you to Ange for her photoshopping skills. You can see he's well connected, isn't he? He's friends with all sorts of influential ruling people. On both sides of the political fence. Yes. Okay, well, we better shut that one down now, Brian, otherwise everything else I say will not be heard at all. <laughs> so I'm not sure how you think of the Pharisees. Maybe you think of them as evil villains tying damsels to the railway tracks. 
because they did cop some criticism from Jesus, didn't they? But actually, those Pharisees, they're more like Rotarians. They're goody-goodies. They're uh, ultra-religious, ultra-moral, ultra-upright citizens. And that was the sort of family that Nicodemus came from. Very religious, very upright. But he didn't just have good family connections, as you saw. He hung out with all the right friends, too. He was a member of the ruling council. His friends were the most upright, most religious people in all Israel. And it seems that Nicodemus himself, he was a very moral and upright man. Do you get the picture? This guy has all the right connections. He is part of the establishment. Everyone would have thought of him as a very religious and moral man. And as far as getting into heaven's concerned, you would think he would have front row seats. And yet, for some reason, he wants to come and see Jesus. And when he comes, he wants to keep it a secret. He comes late at night. Do you wonder why? Did he not want to be seen? Did he not want to be publicly seen speaking to Jesus? Jesus certainly was not part of the establishment. Maybe Nicodemus was a bit embarrassed. Are you wondering, was Nicodemus visiting because he was earnestly and genuinely searching? Well, no. We know he's already a self-assured, together sort of person. And the conversation doesn't flow as you might expect it would with a receptive, searching sort of person. Actually, Nicodemus seems a bit condescending. He starts the conversation saying, Rabbi, we know. This tone, well, it sounds a bit like we who are upright, well-connected, well-educated, we are inclined to think well of you. Even though you're obviously not university-educated, not from the, uh, the sharp end of town, the respectable end of town, some among us don't think well of you, but we do. We see you as a popular teacher. We were thinking perhaps we could arrange some sort of scholarship at a prominent synagogue for you. That sort of <laughs> tone. So let's read verse 2. See if you pick up that condescending, in control sort of tone. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the mirac miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So, if Nicodemus was not earnestly searching, why did he secretly visit Jesus? Remember, he was a Jewish senior professor. I'm sure Nicodemus felt that he personally was religious and moral enough to be acceptable to God. And did you notice that verse that we read a moment ago that Nicodemus flatteringly refers to Jesus as teacher and rabbi, which means Jewish scholar, Perhaps there was some interesting teaching that Nicodemus could benefit from. Perhaps he could get a little top-up from Jesus' unusual teaching. Anyway, in response to Nicodemus' flattering opening, Jesus is downright rude. He harshly cuts Nicodemus off, which was probably something that Nicodemus was quite unfamiliar with. And then he answers a question which Nicodemus had not even asked. Why is Jesus being so harsh? Nicodemus is one of the establishment, he would be a valuable ally, wouldn't he? This reaction from Jesus is very different to the gracious Jesus that we've seen with some of the so-called losers in society, such as the Samaritan woman at the well or Zacchaeus the tax collector. Perhaps the reason that Jesus is being so harsh is because Nicodemus is self-assured and upright. The desperate and needy people 
Well, they don't need to be confronted with their own desperate need, do they? They're already painfully aware of it. But it's those who have it together, those who are decent, moral, religious, together sort of people, they're the ones who have to be shocked into facing their own neediness. Jesus needs to shock Nicodemus into actually listening. It's like a verbal slap to get his full attention. Nicodemus is too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think he needs much repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed to be born again. Let's read verse 3 together now. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And that verbal slap works. Nicodemus goes from being smooth, assured, flattering, in control of the agenda, to now becoming confused, taken aback, at a loss for words, shocked. He fumbles weakly with a purely literal interpretation. Let's read verse 4 together. How, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Nicodemus is sputtering back a response in confusion and disarray. Jesus has totally thrown him, hasn't he? This is certainly not how Sir Nicodemus Pharisee was expecting this chat to turn out. And Jesus doesn't back off either. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. When Jesus talks about being born of water and the spirit, he's referring to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, I guess, should know that. Ezekiel said that God would make a new covenant with his people, that he would cleanse them from their sin and make them into people who love him. And, and uh, we've printed Ezekiel 36 in your outline in the centre there. So just, just to notice the, the phrases of water and spirit coming up in there. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. So now Jesus rebukes him for not getting it. In verse 17, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Then Jesus explains a complete spiritual change, a rebirth is necessary. And he now changes the spirit analogy to wind. It's worth us knowing, since we don't speak Greek, that the Greek words for spirit and wind and breath are just one word, exactly the same word, pneuma. So wind actually is a good analogy for spirit, isn't it? Because you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can see the trees, the long grass, the flags flapping in the breeze. Similarly, spiritual change is invisible, isn't it? But it's also very real. Spiritual change is far-reaching and its effects can be seen. Maybe a person's bitter words become warmer and kinder or their reckless individualism softens to be more loving and self-assured. And there's another thing too. Not only is the wind invisible, but you can't tame it. And you can't tame God's spirit either. You can't inherit it. You can't get it from your friends. The spirit doesn't come to you because you're part of the right family. The spirit doesn't come to you because you're part of the in crowd. The spirit is like the wind. He blows where he pleases. 
I imagine actually Jesus gesturing around at the wind if this was a dark and stormy night when Nicodemus visited. In verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Poor Nicodemus. Are you feeling sorry for him? He's now almost completely at a loss for words. Verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus does not let Nicodemus off the hook yet though. He still has one last stinging criticism for Nicodemus and the Pharisee leaders, the establishment. You are meant to be a leader and a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand spiritual change. It implies that Nicodemus and his crowd look nice on the outside, but inside they are spiritually empty and sinful. Actually, later on in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus bluntly expresses this same frustration. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, they observe the religious rituals for them, ceremonial washing, etc., but inside they are spiritually empty and sinful. Let's be honest. A similar accusation could be levelled at us too, couldn't it? We may look good on the outside, but we are all sinful, broken people. Now, in Jesus' final smackdown of Nicodemus, notice the comparison he makes between the Pharisees and his own disciples, who were mostly bogan fishermen, to be honest. Notice the contrast of we versus you people. Jesus is saying, you don't even understand the basics of Nicodemus. Fail. Let's read verses 10 to 12. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Wow. But now that Nicodemus has finally been stopped in his tracks, see, there's not even any answer this time. He's completely speechless. He's been stopped in his tracks and humbled. Jesus actually changes tone when we get to verse 13, and he starts to teach Nicodemus. However, I have to warn you that it does seem like it's getting a bit weird. It talks about Moses and snakes and the desert. So you'll have to put your thinking caps on while I try and explain the connection, okay? So Jesus refers to a story from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which Georgie read to us earlier. It's a story that Nicodemus certainly would have been familiar with. After Moses had led the Israelites into the desert, they grumbled and complained. So God sent snakes to their camp as a punishment. Many of them were bitten by the snakes and were dying. But bizarrely, if they looked up at a brass image of a snake that had been raised up on a pole, they would miraculously survive. It is a strange story, isn't it? Actually, the whole purpose of this ancient story does not fully make sense until this point, when it's used as an object lesson about Jesus. The snake venom, it's like sin, isn't it? It's inside them, it's in their bloodstream, it's killing them. Well, sin is also inside each of us, to the core. And if our sin is untreated, then it will be the spiritual death of us. 
ironically too, the very thing that causes their pain, the snakes, is lifted up and becomes their rescue. And so with us, Jesus has been made to be sin for our, snake, uh, for our sake, not our snake. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus bears God's full punishment for our sin when he is lifted up on the cross, lifted up just like the brass snake. And the point for us is this, we are also invited to look to him and be saved. Just as the Israelites looked to the bronze snake lifted up and were saved. So does that make sense? Otherwise it seems very random in the middle of this passage, doesn't it? Jesus spells it out for Nicodemus in verses 13 to 15. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And now Jesus comes to this most famous verse. He tells Nicodemus exactly what he needs to do. He can't rely on his family connections. He can't rely on his friends. He can't rely on his own morality. If he tries to rely on any of these, he'll perish, as dead as if he was bitten by a poisonous snake. No, what Nicodemus needs to do is this. He needs to rely on Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can save him from perishing. Jesus is the only one who can give Nicodemus eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So it's an interesting story, isn't it? Nicodemus must have been really shocked. He didn't get what he was expecting from meeting Jesus at all. I guess he could have walked away angry. I guess he could have been offended at the way Jesus exposed him as being so desperately needy himself. I guess he could have written Jesus off and never given him another thought. But do you know what? This isn't the last we hear of Nicodemus, and I love this. That's why I chose this passage. He pops up two more times in the book of John. Firstly, in John chapter 7. The ruling council are fed up with Jesus. And do you know what Nicodemus does? He stands up for Jesus. Even among all his establishment friends who loathe Jesus, Nicodemus stands up and he points out their hypocrisy, that they are plotting against Jesus without even hearing him out first, which actually they are legally obliged to do. I'll read for you John chapter 7, 45 to 52. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? That's Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers and any of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who John reminds us, had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, scathingly, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And let's go a bit further. Let's look at the second reference to Nicodemus in John chapter 19. The situation is Jesus has just died. 
He's been raised up on a cross, raised up like that brass snake. And the penny drops, Nicodemus finally gets it. And do you know who it is that claims Jesus' body from the authorities, who prevents Jesus' body from going to an unmarked common grave for criminals? It's not the disciples. They've got no idea. They are crushed. They're in total disarray. It's a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, a secret believer, and our friend Nicodemus. And what they do is amazing. Nicodemus brings 34 kilograms, 34 kilograms of precious spices, including myrrh. Do you know, myrrh is a very rare spice. It's a fragrant resin. And at times in history, it's been so rare that it's had the same value of, as gold. And I just looked up, gold per kilogram is $53,000. So, so this must have cost Nicodemus megabucks. It's an amazingly generous gesture, isn't it? So let's have a quick look at John chapter 19, 38 to 42. I'll read it to you. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Again, John reminds us, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So what do you think about that? How do you think Nicodemus felt about Jesus now? There's no more sneaking around to see Jesus at night, is there? Nicodemus has transitioned from darkness to light. Now he's willing to stand up to his friends about Jesus. And he's willing to pay a massive price for Jesus. Why do you reckon that is? It's because Nicodemus has seen his own need, isn't it? He's seen his own need, finally. Nicodemus, in that conversation back with Jesus in John 3, he's realised his family connections won't save him, his social connections won't save him, even his own morality won't save him. He now knows that he needs to be born again. He knows that only Jesus can save him. He knows that only Jesus can give him eternal life. And that changes everything, doesn't it? No more half-heartedness, no more being ashamed to be seen with Jesus. All that status and prestige and stuff that he lived for before, it now means nothing. Now Nicodemus wants to live for Jesus. Okay, in closing, I want to ask you a question. Why is John 3.16 so famous? We've got a slide here. Have you, seen, have you ever seen this at a sports event where people hold up? It's, it's almost always John 3.16. See this guy up on the top right there? Does anyone know who that is? Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow. And do you know that was their 2009 championship? And after he wore that on his... Uh, blackout as they call it for the, the lights reflecting 92 million people googled it so and any guesses why is John 316 so famous 
It's a real question. I was hoping to get some answers. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly right. Thanks, Alex. Or Alexander. <laughs> it's, it's the gospel in a single verse, isn't it? So succinct. The truth is, it's a daring rescue mission. The truth is, it's a person, Jesus. The truth is, a relationship with Jesus. Thanks. You can turn that one off now, Brian. So, knowing Jesus means forgiveness of our sins. Knowing Jesus means peace with God. Knowing Jesus means eternal life. So what about you? How are you going to get peace with God? How are you going to not perish but have eternal life? How are you going to get through the customs gates of heaven? What are you relying on? Family, friends, being a good, nice, moral person? Do you know what? None of it can save you. You're not better than Nicodemus. You also need to be born again. You need a whole new life. You need Jesus. And the thing is, as long as you're relying on the other stuff, you're only ever going to be on the fringe with Jesus, like Sam said before. Until you reach that tipping point, until you realise that Jesus is the only one who can save you, you'll never really love him. You'll never really live for him. Now, of course, I want to say that Young kids are under their family's sort of faith umbrella, is the way we describe it. Uh, but if you're a youth age, if you're a sort of teenager and, and older, then you need to think about responding to Jesus yourself. Because it won't be like me on that holiday. You can't scrape in on the coattails of your family saying, I'm with them. Like Nicodemus, you need to realise your own sinfulness and your own need for forgiveness and that only Jesus can save you. So Jesus says, you must be born again. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have come to bring us forgiveness for our sins. We confess that we are sinful people, and that we are selfish, and that we want to be our own gods, but we ask you to forgive us these sins, and purify us. In Jesus' name, amen.